Welcome to Reading to Kids podcast. I'm your host, Jenna. And I'm your host, Peyton. And we're here to read to you or with you. We know that sometimes moms and dads don't always have the time or the motivation to read to their kids each night, and we know how important it is. So, on those nights that you're not in the mood, we're going to do it for you. Can't wait to read with you. Good job, Peyton. High five. If you're reading this, it's too late by Sue Bottomon Bosch. Pseudonymous Bosch. This is book two. What chapter are we on? Do you know? 30? We're on chapter 18. Yeah, girl. Okay. Chapter 18, The File. We're on page 185. Considering the documents in the sound prism file spanned 500 years, there weren't very many of them. The oldest is a wrinkled scrap of parchment covered with elaborate calligraphic script. 15th August, 1817. First Sir Gilbert, his 13th birthday. The day the boy becomes a man. This musical ball, known as the sound prism, belongs to your late father. And before that, his father. And before that, his. I hope you cherish this family heirloom. But beware, the ball is not for play. Beyond that, the parchment was too smudged to be legible. Cass put it aside, wondering if it was, if it would be like her, like to know what it would be like to know not only who your father was, but your father's father's father. For the next letter was more recent. As Max Ernest shined a flashlight on it, Cass gasped. Look at this one. From Gra- It's from Grandpa Larry. How weird. That's not weird, remember? Mr. Wallace said that he was their accountant, right? Yeah, but still. Dear Mr. Wallace, I confess I was surprised to see you when you examined the sound prism of yours. Such a whimsical object. And you, such a serious man. I can't tell much without being allowed to touch it just what are you afraid of? But I believe to it to be carved in, by alabaster and about 16, 600 years ago. Most of the workmanship looks Australian, but the silver van, band is more typically English. A later edition? With, with what tools and interior was carved, I cannot guess. It is in its own small way. The sound prism is an engineering feat to revel. Re, re, Rival from Roman, no rival, I think, to rival from Roman aqueducts. And that's all I have to report, except for a strange coincidence. Imagine my shock yesterday when a lady walked in asking if I've ever encountered a stone sound ball. And what a lady. So beautiful, but very cold. I asked if she would, I asked if she would sell any of her exquisite gold jewelry and she just laughed. Naturally, I didn't tell her anything about, about you. See you at, see you at tax time. As usual, our accountants are our accounts are a mess. Cheers, Larry. Wow, so my grandfather has seen the sound prism. And and Cass putting the letter down, I wonder if we should ask him about it. So do you think that they know about the Turkish society? Cass shook her head. It didn't sound like it. Cass hesitated and then shrugged it off. It's impossible. An old yellow manuscript took up the rest of the pages. When they saw the title, they both breathed in sharply with excitement. Max Ernest, still holding the flashlight. Cass sat back and started reading with the same kind of pleasurable anticipation you have when you're about to read, oh, say, the sequel to your favorite book. What does that mean? Like we're reading the sequel to book one. Sequel means like the next one and the next one. Like Hocus Pocus 2 is a sequel to number one. Hmm. The Legend of the Cabbage Face. (gasps) 
a gothic tale. They were right. Cabbage Face. Note, this story is based on oral tales and interviews with older Turkish society members, now sadly deceased. I believe it to be true in essence, if not entirely in fact. Like all society lore, it should be regarded as sacred trust and never shared with any outsider. Sign XXXXX1898. Oh, they couldn't even say who it was from. Part the first. 400 years ago, in the city of Basel, the f- in the country known as Switzerland, there lived a great doctor. At this At a very young age, this doctor rose to the highest of his profession, treating grateful patients from all over the country and teaching many adoring students at the university. And yet he was unhappy. He felt stifled by life in Europe and by the closed-minded state of the doctors around him. Medicine in those days were not far from magic, but he aspired to work in the ways that even when he considered obscure and dangerous, unbeknownst to his peers, the doctor was a devotee of the occult practice that is sometimes called the secret science or alchemy. And so, not much more than 20 years old, he closed his medical practice and left home on a quest to discover the secrets of the East. He traveled far and wide, consulting the astrologers of Arabia, the metallurgist of Europe, uh, of Egypt, and the libraries of the Constantinople's until he could just until he justly could claim that he knew more of alchemy arts than any other man alive and yet he was not satisfied for it was not the common goal of alchemy that he was after turning lead into gold but something far more elusive power over life itself when at last after years and years of searching he returned home he immediately embarked on another journey the journey of the mind for as many years as he's traveled abroad he now remained locked up in his basement laboratory never emerging except for to collect ever strange more exotic ingredients from his experiments powders from grounds of dried bugs roots of thousand-year-old trees liquids distilled from the blood of animals unknown outside of the most remote jungles curious quivering packages his housekeeper dare not peek inside at first his housekeeper had asked about his work and she soon learned not to question him when he was younger the doctor had loved nothing more than to discuss the mysteries of medicine he had been kind and generous now he was cruel and withdrawn he was interested in only himself and yet he was no longer himself finally the time was night was nigh the alchemist was about to complete his greatest task the raging furnace cast of scarlet glow over the cold dungeon-like laboratory but it was deeper more internal more infernal fire that was reflected in his eyes of the man pacing to and fro across the stone floor a fire ambition grew so great that it had become madness of greed so insatiable it had become a monster never pausing he checked the pots and the beakers and the decanters he gauged temperatures he mixed liquids and poured powders his impatience growing more feverish with every passing moment the door creaked open and a dusty shaft of light suddenly illuminated the laboratory laboratory shut the door frolin now hissed the alchemist the door slammed shut but not before the light landed on the dark on a large copper tub in the corner of the room dark oozing sludge bubbled inside what have i told you about interrupting me while i'm working are you stupid or merely obstinate the woman addressed in a friendly fashion his housekeeper stood with her back now close to the now to the closed door holding her hand to her nose i'm terribly sorry hair doctor she said nervously but the stench the neighbors are complaining does it smell i hadn't noticed replied the alchemist coldly it's suffocating i fear for your health doctor 
The alchemist cackled as if it were a great joke. Oh, I have no fear in that regard. I have never felt better, Frolin. Never better. But all of that, the horse's dung, the fermenting for months, even the horses couldn't bear it. Please allow me to clean it up. What could you possibly want with? Enough! Forget the neighbors. Soon they will be worshipping and fear me and will not dare talk any longer. But you used to have their love. Why do you, why do you want their fear? Silence, Frolin. No more questions. Attend to your housekeeping. Very good, doctor, said the housekeeper, clearly unsatisfied. As she turned to go, a muffled cry echoed the stone room. Was that it sounded like an animal, she said, peering into the darkness, or perhaps a... Perhaps the smell is rather close, is rather close in here, said the alchemist. It seems to be affecting your imagination. Now get out. The housekeeper opened the door again, and this time the beam of the light fell on the alchemist. One more thing, Frolin. I am no mere doctor any longer, he said, his face floating like some terrible apparition among the swirling particles of dust, for I have learned the secret to long buried under pyramids, powers known only to kings in ancient Egypt. From now on, you will address, address me as Pharaoh. No, Lord Pharaoh. Yes, Lord Pharaoh, said the housekeeper, hurrying out. When the door closed behind the housekeeper, the newly crowned Lord Pharaoh had covered the tub in the corner of the room. Oh, hovered over the tub in the corner of the room. A large flask was half submerged in the sludge, its glass top glinting in the top of the fire. Whimpering, gurgling sounds were emitted from the flask. Yes, my beautiful, my ugly little creature, your time has come, said the alchemist, pouring the dripping flask into the tub, holding high above his head. Oh, miracle of nature, nay, miracle of man, nay, miracle of my own hands, he proclaimed. The world will behold you with awe, and to me they will bow. The flask held a long, narrow neck and a large, round bottom. In the dim light, not much of the contents could be seen except a tiny foot curled under a leg, an exceptional large nose pressed against the glass. When Cass read the line, Max Ernest let out a gasp. Cass looked at him, scared. Just keep reading. Max Ernest peered over Cass's shoulder to see what came next. Can I take a breath, said Cass? Besides, I thought you didn't, like, believe in the homunculus anyways. Yeah, but it's still a good story. Even though you don't think it's true? Then how come you always, you always say you like nonfiction, Cass grinned. She was enjoying this. Just read already. Here, you read. I'll hold the flashlight. Part, sec part the second. Ten years later, the shimmering ball spun in the air and making strange, wonderful sort of music. It seemed to incorporate all the sounds of voices of nature yet come from another world altogether. Watching and listening from the opposite ends of the king's throne from the cre was a creature no less fat and fantastical, but no more earthly. Normally, this creature, although called many names, he had no name to call his own. Hated crowds. They always stared and pointed and threw things, but he found if he concentrated on the wondrous spinning instrument, the instrument indeed it was, then he could almost ignore the faces of the country courtiers that lined up on either side of him. He felt a tug on his iron collar, followed by a sharp crack whip on his shoulder. His master was urging him forward. Your Majesty Lord Pharaoh and his homunculus, a lord guard announced with a flourish the homunculus for he was a creature described shuffled forward his shoulder still smart still smarting with pain lord pharaoh is it asked the heavy heavyset monarch sitting on the throne and who granted you that title i beg your forgiveness sir a village magician's folly that's all lord pharaoh said bellowing 
with uncharacteristic and clearly unfelt obsequences. The king nodded impatiently. So this is the miraculous creation we have been hearing about, is it? The Bavarian marvel? He doesn't look like much, just another carnival dwarf. The Lord Pharaoh kicked the homunculus from behind. Whether to prove the king's point or to push him forward was unclear. If you please, your majesty, it's not so much how he looks, it's how he was made. It's tr- is it true he was made from dung? asked the jeweled queen by sitting by the king's side. Not from dung, your highness, in dung, Lord Pharaoh corrected. He was incubated in fertile mud that I confess was not entire savorly, entirely savorly. Disgusting. He's a monster. A pale a pale woman standing nearby the queen's lady in waiting, and so small. So what then is the recipe for the dung dwarf? Asked the king, silencing the lady and waiting with a look. They said that you have discovered the secret to a philosopher's stone. Ah, a thousand pardons, but I cannot reveal that, your majesty. It may be that I am privy to secrets, once once known only to the ancients, but such power, if it fell onto the wrong hands, are you sure the hands... Are you sure your hands are the right ones? Asked the king sternly. At this, the master's face turned red, and the homunculus observed. He knew that he would pay for it later, but he couldn't help but being pleased by the sight of his master's embarrassment. You jest, your majesty, said Lord Pharaoh, smiling to conceal his fury. I never jest. That is my job, said the king. He pointed to the small, wiry man who was now holding in his hand a strange musical ball that had been that had so fascinated the homunculus. Yes, his majesty is not the jester. That is I, said the man shaking the bells that dangled, that dangled from his hat as if to demonstrate. No more, no more his majesty is the majester, and for that it is my mother. He threw his ball into the air, punctuating his joke with a few notes of a story. Then he burst out laughing as if he tickled himself so much that he couldn't help it. And what else uh, What else of your creature? Does he not speak? asked the king, ignoring the gesture. No, sire, said, answered Lord Pharaoh curtly. Um, there was a, that, this was a sore subject for the alchemist. The homunculus knew that he was... He would get extra lashings later because the king had mentioned it. Lord Pharaoh knew, or strongly suspected, that in fact his creation could speak. Once, when the homunculus thought his master was away, he'd made the mistake of practicing his speech at a slightly louder level than his usual whisper. His large, fleshy tongue had made enunciations difficult, and he'd just mastered the words, I am cab when the door to his dungeon flew open and his master entered. Oh, he's Cabbage Face. Yeah. Excited by the prospect of the fame and the riches and riches a talking homunculus would bring, Lord Pharaoh demanded that he repeat the words, but the homunculus never uttered another syllable again, even when he was alone. So little Little did he want to please his master, he was willing to endure years of beating to avoid what his master wished. Yet the gesture studied the creature's reactions to his ma- as his master spoke about him. 
Truly, your carnival sensation hath he not sensation? asked the jester. He hath the nose of an elephant and the ears likewise. As for his eyes, we cannot help but see his. His great tongue, does he not taste and never talk? Silence, jester, we do not look at you. We silence, jester, we do not look of you, Lord Pharaoh, said the king, pronouncing the name with disdain. But we think perhaps we are safer with you in our court than without. You will be our guest as long as you wish to stay in our kingdom. Thank you, your majesty, said Lord Pharaoh, bowing with much humility as he could muster. A royal guard stepped forward to escort him out. Where sleeps the homunculus? With the servants? asked the guard. With livestock, said Lord Pharaoh, fixing the homunculus with a hard, angry stare. His dumb like an, he's dumb like an animal, so he will lie like an animal. Aww. Methinks he he lies he lies not like an animal, but like a rascal, and he be not dumb, but would not speak. The jester said the jester with a twinkle in his eye, If my thought be shrewd, he is more than a fool than I. Oh, is Owen? I don't know, maybe. Like no, this was long, long ago. Oh. Well maybe, maybe Owen's old too. But you are a fool, fool, said the king laughing. And you are hard you are hard on the poor creature. Not half as hard as his master. I inflict only puns. He inflicts punishment, said the jester. Mind your own business and meddlesome mind your own mind your own business, you meddlesome idiot, hissed Lord Pharaoh. His mask of politeness was slipping. But fooling is my business, said the jester, tossing his ball into the air. The homunculus stared at the ball as it as it stared one more to sing. Max Ernest turned the pages. I can't read if you don't shine it on. Oh, sorry, I wanted to see what the sound I wanted to see the sound prism again, said Cass, unwrapping the object as she had dug out of the ground. It glowed in the darkness. It's definitely the ball of the story. It has to be. She looked at Max Ernest, waiting for him to contradict her. What? I agree, it's the ball in the story. Cass nodded in satisfaction and shone the flashlight on the manuscript again. But that doesn't mean the rest of the story is true. Why do you have to take the fun out of everything? It's like when you're reading a book and you're really into it. And then at the end, the writer says, all it, all it was a dream. I hate that. I didn't say it was a dream. Cass sighed. Never mind. Just read. She flipped the manuscript back over him and pointed to where they were, they were on the page. Part, part the third. He might not get much sleep, but at least the homunculus reflected. It wouldn't be cold as night. The pig pen was nothing if not warm. The pigs were packed so tight they could barely turn around. Steam rose with every snort and kick and bowel movement. Alas, warm did not mean comfortable. These pigs were not cuddly creatures. Instead, they had mottled, bristly coats caked in mud and feces. And they had hard hooves and hungry mouths and long fight sharpened tusks. In short, they were hogs. Swine. The homunculus cowered in the corner of the pen, waiting for the hogs to realize that he wasn't one of them. And then he had quite possibly been left for them to eat. And yet, he bore no resentment. He felt an affection and a kinship with these beasts, and not only because their snouts resembled his a bit. They too were helpless captives, condemned to feed on scraps, never satisfied, forever hungry. I wonder why he doesn't run away.
I think he's going to. Ah, hunger. Hunger was the first memory in his and his only memory. Aw, the homunculus just remembers being hungry all the time. Hunger was his first memory, his only memory. Before the red glow of the furnace, there was hunger. Before cold stone before the cold stone walls of his dungeon room, there was hunger. Before the pain blows of his master, there was hunger. Before the jeering crowds, there was hunger. This gnawing pit inside of him. This never healing wound. His master never fed him more than the bare minimum necessary to keep him alive. And sometimes not even that much. Often he had to feed on the cockroaches that he found on the floor of his room. If he was very, very lucky, the housekeeper took pity on him and she might give him a bone to gnaw on every now and then. Bones were his favorite food. He sucked out the rich buttery marrow as if his life depended on extracting every last drop. If only he could have some bone marrow now. He looked at the hogs around him, weighing the odds. If he struck first, he would would he eat or would he be eaten? Lost his bloody reverie, he didn't even notice the tune playing in the barn outside the pig pen until it was quite close, but his attention finally shifted to the urethral music, so utterly unlike his muddy, grunting surroundings that it seemed to be coming from another plane of existence altogether. Where art thou, my little monculus? The homunculus saw the jester's face peering into the pen before the jester before the jester saw him. Instinctively, he recoiled. No one had ever sought him out before, excepting to throw rocks at him or worse. Ah, there you are. If not a pearl among swine, then certainly the earl, proclaimed the jester with a laugh. Here, I have brought you dinner from the table of the king, no less. He tossed a turkey leg into the pen, and the homunculus caught it with his large hand and immediately devoured it, bone and all. What, nary... Nary a thank you, said the jester. Are you but a hog after all? The homunculus did not answer, but he looked up from the drumstick long enough with, to lock eyes with the jester. Speak, dung boy. Prove thou art not pork, but a person. Addressed him, addressed him so directly, the homunculus trembled uncontrollably. He did not know how to react. Fear not your master. He is nowhere near. We are among animal friends. And unless they also speak, your secret is safe. The jester is more gentle. Come on, we are not alike, you and I. The jester removed his hat, revealing for the first time his ears. They were unusually large and pointy. Can you talk? Wait. If you can, I I would talk with you. Maybe that's Cass's um, family member. Dad. Well, it could be as like her great-great-grandfather. Can you talk? If you can, I would talk with you. The homunculus could ne- have not said why he answered the. He could not have said why he answered the gesture when, for years, he had refused to speak. He was so unfamiliar with kindness that he did not recognize it, and yet he responded like a kitten to its first bowl of milk. "I can," he whispered. "What's that? I didn't hear you." "I can," the homunculus said more clearly. "I can speak." Well done, said the jester, smiling. Hearing his first words of praise, the homunculus's chest swelled with a feeling others might have known as pride. And something strange happened, something that never happened before, no matter how hungry he'd been, or no matter how hard his master beat him. He cried. Oh, talking is not so bad as that, said the jester. True, most people say only silly things when they speak, but it's easier to ignore them if you're saying the silly things yourself. 
The homunculus stared in uncomprehending. The jester laughed. So he can talk, but he knows not a joke. What use is it? Perhaps I can teach you to laugh. Fancy that, a jester for a teacher. That makes for a, a joke already. Unfortunately, the homunculus's unexpected speech had roused the hogs, and they were now closing in on him with a hungry suspicion. Here, here, beat them back with this, said the jester. Um, here, beat them back with this, said the jester, throwing an oaken staff into the pen. We must act fast if you are to escape. Methinks the hogs are easier to outrun than the king's hounds. As soon as the homunculus had extracted himself from the pig pen, the jester stopped with a raised hand. Wait, my friend, what are you called? I cannot rescue a man if I know not his name. But I have no name, stammered the homunculus. No name? Impossible. They must call you something. Only mean things, awful things, except sometimes, the homunculus hesitated. Yes, sometimes a housekeeper. When my master is not around, she calls me little cabbage face. The homunculus covered his face with his large hands. Years of taunting had made him immune to the most embarrassments. But this was something else altogether. Cabbage face, huh? The jester laughed. It suits you perfectly. The jester tossed his ball up thoughtfully. Your master made you a monster. Your name will be will make you a man. So cabbage face is the homunculus's name, Cass explained. How about that? I can't believe we didn't think of it, said Max Ernest. Or did we? Now, I can't remember. Do you think that's true? Is your, is your name, that your name makes you who you are? No, that's silly. Like, if your name was Dakota, you don't suddenly turn into the state. I have two names, and I'm not two people. Yeah, but often, but he often acted like two people, Cass wanted to say. Instead, she asked, why don't you think Lord Fierro gave the homunculus a name? You know, like Frankenstein or something. Actually, Frankenstein wasn't Frankenstein's name. He was just a monster. Frankenstein was the man who named him, you know, Dr. Frankenstein. So that would be like calling the homunculus Lord Pharaoh, which would be kind of funny considering the way he treated him. I mean, in the story, not that he really... Yeah, I get it, said Cass. Let me read the last part. Part conclusive. It is said that the homunculus must serve his master, for that is the nature of a homunculus. But it also says that if... The marker takes advantage of his servant and treats him too much like a slave. The homunculus will take vengeance on his maker and run away. For that, too, is the nature of a homunculus. The homunculus called Cabbage Face ran far, far away from his man's master, Lord Pharaoh, never resting. He crossed oceans and deserts and mountain ranges and city slums until the day Lord Pharaoh caught up with him. And the homunculus, at last, confronted the man who should have been him... To, uh, been to him a father but instead he was moral enemies when the homunculus had vanquished his master he killed him the homunculus buried his remains far from the eyes of who, those who knew him so that never again another person would another person whether greed or glory or science repeat the mistakes that his master had made the homunculus buried him with the means of the homunculus's own making, the alchemist's secret notes in the diaries, his recipes and ingredients, and the leftovers of his awful experiments. And then the homunculus laid himself down across the grave above Lord, Lord Pharaoh. Henceforth, oh, henceforward, he would protect the grave from the world, and more importantly, the world from the grave. Yet in all those years, forever after, the homunculus would never forget the fool who fed him who freed him, sorry. Before he ran, he made 
to this funny man, or before he ran, he made to this funny man a solemn vow that he, when the ball called, he would come. And he always did. And he always has the end. So Cass put down the last page in wonder. So do you think the sound prism really is the power to the homunculus call? Well, it would be sort of crazy if it did. And kind of scary, but it looks like Mr. Wallace thinks it's all made up. He's shown the flashlight in the back of the last page where it was hand, a handwritten note. The legend of Cabbage Face, indeed. It is well known that the author of this story, my predecessor's predecessor's predecessor, fancied himself as a great writer and novelist. Here, I fear, he let his literary ambitions and his imagination get away from him. The fact that the jester appears to really be jester proves this legend and to be just that. A hat with bells? Ridiculous. If we know anything, we knew that our noble fonder was a man of science, not a fool. And a talking homunculus? Sentimental clip trap. If such a creature ever existed, he must have been a monster, incapable of thought or feeling. Still, we know that the masters of the Midnight Sun search even now for Lord Pharaoh's grave, so perhaps there is a grain of truth here after all. Deserves further study. W-W-W-I-I-I. Mr. Wallace is a uh, sourpuss, said Cass, when she'd finished reading. Oh, it was Mr. Wallace. Come on, be honest. The guy, um, I think Mr. Wallace is Owen, right? Mr. Wallace, Mr. Wallace. I don't remember who Mr. It's hard to say who, who Owen has been. I think that that was a crumbum. I don't remember. Mm -hmm, Just one. Come on, be honest. You don't really believe that some alchemist made a little guy out of horse poop 500 years ago, do you? In poop? Not out of poop. And he's still alive and he even talks? I don't know. All I know is we promised to find him whether he talks or not. Are you going to help me or aren't you? Cass looked at him expectantly. She needed Max Ernest to f- in a fighting shape or whatever Max Ernest's version of fighting shape was. She couldn't afford to have such a waffling, moody partner. Max Ernest nodded and extended his arm. This was a serious business, and they both knew it. Whoever or whatever the homunculus was or wasn't, the fact remained that Dr. L and Miss Mavius were looking for him, and that alone made their job extremely important and extremely dangerous. They shook their hands, both beginning at last to feel the chill.